Welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their film and television adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm Brenna. And our show is created on the traditional lands of the Haudenosaunee, the Huron-Wendat, and the Anishinaabe on lands connected to the Toronto Purchase Treaty 13 of 1805. And on the Tecumloops Tay Shwetmik territory within the unceded traditional lands of Shwetmik Ulu. And today's text, The Fallout, was shot in Los Angeles, the traditional home of the Tongva, Keech, and Shumash peoples. And Joe says it feels like an LA film. I don't think the place <laughs> is really expressly stated, but I also no. kind of think placelessness and USA ness is sort of central to the messaging of the movie itself. So that's okay this time. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, you said right before we started recording that you really want to talk about the beginning and the end of this film. And unfortunately, both of those aspects are anywhere USA. Yeah, and I think ultimately that's the tragedy of the film, right? Is that mm-hmm. it's such a common story. So, folks, uh, content warning off the top. The Fallout is about a school shooting. Um, it's not a film where you see a great deal of violence. And as the title suggests, it's about the aftermath of a school mm-hmm. shooting, not the moment itself. But it is particularly in the first moments of the film, emotionally difficult and disturbing watch, especially if you have any kind of history with violence. So just a heads up that we are going to be talking about school violence and yeah, you should just know that off the top. Don't Can I have some wine? Did you have like the craziest nightmares last night? You have to be able to sleep to have nightmares. I've learned to lose you can't afford to. Tell me about your brother. He was uh, always making me laugh. What are you feeling right now? I feel mad. You went through something no one should ever have to go through. Can you stay just till I fall asleep? Life's hard. You're right. Life's confusing! I can't feel anything! What are you thinking about? I can't say it. Let's say you die tomorrow. Now, what if you die sad? Because you regret not saying what you wanted to say. This can't be for nothing. We won't even let this be for nothing. the shoulders you can't do it without the shoulders Ooh, yeah i could like say i like it like like it like that yeah so i was cued to this film by my other co-host trace because he saw this at south by southwest last year it made a lot of big waves when it first came out uh in part because this is a pretty assured debut So this is written and directed by Megan Park. And fun fact, Brenna, she is Canadian. And we were also talking before we started recording about just why Shailene Woodley is in this movie as Anna, Veda's therapist. Just saw it on Wikipedia and I can't not react immediately. She played Grace Bowman. It's Grace Bowman. This is Grace Bowman's movie? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so she, what? I'm willing to bet, knows Woodley because of their time from The Secret Life of an American Teenager. 
Yeah, Grace Bowman was the main character of The Secret Life of the American Teenager, the, the character who gets pregnant in a, in a most comical way. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. Okay. Yeah. This, this is surprising and interesting information. <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, I kind of secretly love it when... I don't want to say under the radar actors go on to become really assured directors, but it is interesting to see them transition between roles in the film world. And yeah, so Park got a lot of credit when this film came out. And then of course, the other big sort of revelation to people was Jenna Ortega as Veda, the main character. And Jenna Ortega has been working steadily for the last couple of years, but a lot of people seem to feel like this is a big breakout moment for her because she hasn't had a really dramatic role like this and especially not where the entire film hinges on her character or her performance. I just want to say like and not to not to make this entirely about the secret life of the American teenager but oh my God. I do think <laughs> it's kind of delightful to see an actress who got an awful lot of stick for that role, right? I mean, it was a badly written show and it was a badly written mm-hmm. part and she was a particularly credulous character in a world of credulous characters i mean it was a lot i watched the whole series i know of course you did that that's why (laughs) i knew as soon as i mentioned it you would flip out (laughs) but i think it's really interesting to see as i said an actress who took a lot of heat produce something that is genuinely an accomplishment like i think this film is an would be an accomplishment from any director but Mm -hmm. the idea that it's like a first-time director who has had such a I don't know, a reputation tied up in like fluff to Mm -hmm. to produce this. I think it's pretty remarkable. Yeah, I feel like this is a conversation you wouldn't have been privy to. But we had a similar kind of dialogue around Emerald Fennell last year. It's the writer director of Promising Young Woman, which was a a rape revenge film. And she was known as an actress who had appeared in a couple of different things. And people had always just thought of her as a pretty woman an actress Mm -hmm. and then she comes along and makes a really critical satire about toxic masculinity and the way that we talk about sexual assault and it was a very polarizing film as well but it's masterfully constructed and she ended up getting a bunch of awards like i think she was at least nominated if not won the oscar for best original screenplay so it's always super fun for me to watch these people they're almost always women get written off and then they come back in a different capacity and obviously we were the dum-dums for doubting their creative output or their ability to do fantastic work Well, it's interesting because now this conversation is making me think about all the ways the fallout is really an opportunity for reinvention for a lot of figures in the film, right? Because Mm -hmm. Maddie Ziegler was one of the kids on Dance Moms. Julie Bowen is the mom from Modern Family who gets a much more emotionally nuanced role Mm -hmm. here. And Shailene Woodley is sort of experimenting with this like serious, austere kind of character type here. So it's Mm -hmm. almost like... When you put a woman who has been pigeonholed by the industry behind the camera, she's able to offer space for lots of different other women to flourish. That's kind of a cool story happening in the background of this film, too. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and I like the fact that you identified the prominent female figures in this film, because, well, I do think that Niles Fitch as Quentin, who is one of the other school shooter survivors, as well as Will Rope as Nick Veda's best friend, who ends up becoming the mouthpiece spokesperson for a kind of defund the NRA movement afterwards. They're both doing good work, but this isn't their movie right like this Mm -hmm. film is dominated by female performances and i think that's where a lot of the emotional nuance comes from yeah i agree totally i think there's a really lovely scene with john oritz as veda's dad they have a really emotionally i mean i'm i was moved by that scene where they're sort of shouting their feelings out into the Mm -hmm. into the universe um but yes you're right i think there's sort of three critical relationships in veda's life and there were four, and there's this kind of background sort of growing away and apart between her and Nick. But at the same mm-hmm. time, you know, she has this intense relationship with another survivor, Mia. And mm-hmm. then she has this very sweet and devoted relationship with her little sister that at least a central piece of the movie is them repairing that that relationship after the shooting. Yes, and that's Lumi Pollock as Amelia. And then we have this um, fantastic, I think fantastic, mother-daughter relationship, which is ultimately like, Veda's like, my mom is really nice and she cares about me a lot, but she worries. And so I don't Mm -hmm. tell her things. And what she recognizes by the end of the film is, of course, that all her mother wants is to know those things, even when they're hard. And there's this great scene where Veda, like, info dumps everything that has happened since the shooting (laughs) on her mom. I loved it. I loved it. (laughs) Her mom is just like, uh-huh, I thank you for trusting me with that. And then takes like uh-huh. a huge long drink of wine. It's such a good scene. Yeah, I thought that that was maybe one of the more accessible scenes in an often very challenging film. Yeah. Like this is not an easy movie to watch or digest. And I felt like that scene was a good amount of levity, but it's also super important and still very emotional, right? Like, It's at a vital moment in Veda's life where she is finally on the road to recovery and starting to feel things and allowing herself to feel things after being numb to the trauma Mm -hmm. that she has survived. And she's been at a distance from her mom, from her younger sister. So this is the moment where she finally opens up and yeah, it is an info dump and (laughs) Julie Bowen is great. I think... (laughs) she's a minor figure in the film like when she shows Mm -hmm. up it's important but she's not there often because this is a story about kids making their way through it and i thought that scene was both really funny but also really emotionally grounded and it it just comes at a very important time right before the climax which then undoes everything but brenda i realize we've not really said what this movie is about (laughs) okay uh do you want me to do the plot synopsis If you wouldn't mind. I mean, I think this is a movie that feels like it has key scenes that we can focus on. Yeah, it's a slow and it's a quiet movie. um, And there's not a lot that happens. So I think I can cover the main beats. The film opens with our main character, Veda, and her best friend, Nick. And we get this sense of this kind of intense relationship between them. When they arrive at school, normal day, and there's a lot of effort in the film made to normalize the day right like Mm -hmm. there's you know oftentimes when we read sensationalized versions of the school shooting story it's prom or it's uh, the first day back or it's some sort of emotional climax point this is a very normal day yeah 
Amelia calls her because she needs to tell someone that her she's just had her period and she needs to like invest that information somewhere. So she calls her sister. Mm-hmm. And while she's sort of out of class in the bathroom talking to her sister, a school shooting happens. We find out later in the film that it lasts for six minutes. And when she's in the bathroom, she's hiding out with Mia and eventually with Quinton. And the three of them mm-hmm. are sort of trapped in the stall together. Quinton is covered in blood and it's like incredibly tense. Yeah and intense to watch it's overwhelming frankly it's very I mean, overwhelming even if you know what to expect like we've seen variations of this a million times before and the impact was not at all diluted this is still completely visceral the minute even just little things like mia's earring drops mm-hmm. on the floor and i kept waiting for the shooter to come in and spot that they were all trying to hide out of sight on top of the toilet and it's it's overwhelming yeah mm-hmm. there's a an amazing shot when she's leaning on the lockers talking to her sister and the conversation between her and her sister is so normal and you mm-hmm. see someone in a hoodie yes with a backpack all in black and in shadow cross the hallway behind her and head in the direction that she had come from yeah it's blink and you miss it so yeah and you only know because you know what the movie is about that that's what that is but right i should finish the plot and then i want to come back and talk about that moment so basically as they heal after this trauma uh nick becomes a gun control advocate he's speaking Mm -hmm. out he's becoming sort of he really blossoms into himself as an activist as a way of dealing with his trauma and veda instead retracts she Mm -hmm. sort of falls into herself she doesn't talk to anyone her parents send her to therapy with um shailene woodley and she tries to treat it like a joke she tries to keep it at arm's length Mm mm-hmm And she and Mia, who have really intensely shared this trauma together, become closer and closer and closer, um, eventually having like a sexual relationship. It's almost like a trauma bond going on, right? Between her and Clinton and between her and Mia. Yeah. Yeah. And so Veda so struggles so to explain for herself what that experience is. Um, And instead, she almost sexualizes those feelings. Well, she does sexualize those feelings mm-hmm. in both directions. So she tries to make yep. a kind of a pass at Quentin as well. And he rejects her very gently and sweetly, but she's sort of mortified by it. And that mm-hmm. causes her to re- withdraw from everyone. And ultimately what brings her out, I think, she has a moment where Amelia, her sister, confesses to her that she blames herself for the fact that Mia was in that bathroom and could have been shot. Mm-hmm. And that... There's something about knowing that someone else is carrying emotional burden that opens this up for Veda to then connect first with her father and then with her mother and then finally Mm -hmm. to reconcile with Mia. And what's interesting is that the film gives us a lot of hope in those moments. Yep. Although I think not... Not an unreasonable amount. It's not fantasy. No, because she doesn't reconcile with Nick and there's a real sense that they might not reconcile Mm -hmm. that that relationship may not be repaired yeah and then the film ends and all of that hope gets taken away (laughs) yeah (laughs) so at the very the very final shot of the film is uh, veda waiting outside of mia's dance class she texts her to say that she's there it's this beautiful peaceful moment she's looking out at the landscape she's taking these deep breaths you have this sense Mm -hmm. that she's like come back into herself is really feeling the world in all of its range 
and she's breathing deep. Her hair is blowing in the breeze. And then she gets an alert on her phone that there's been another school shooting in Ohio. And she has a, a complete breakdown. And the final shot of the film is just the sky. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, my God, yep. that, that ending, Joe. Oh, my God. Yeah. It's just oh, whatever hope we had. Mm-hmm. The film does not let anyone. No. The film does not let America off easy. That is how I will frame that. Yeah. The film isn't ready to let anybody off the hook. And while it is deeply personal, and I think one of the things I most appreciated about it is that this isn't the tale of someone who was wounded in that initial attack. They weren't singled out by the shooter. They didn't have a direct connection to this individual. These are just people who are bystanders and look at how deeply it affects them. But Mm. it's immediately clear who is to blame and where the rage that Veda will eventually be able to express herself in her second therapy appointment with Shailene Woodley. Like in the aftermath of the shooting, we see the news cameras pulling up to the school and then we slowly kind of crane up past the school and the final shot before we kind of transition into the aftermath or the fallout is the American flag fluttering Mm. in the breeze. That shot gave me chills. It's America. This is what we do here. We kill kids because we have really easy access to guns. And we don't want to change it, right? And the, no. the film the film doesn't let us feel hope at the end, right? Mm-hmm. In fact, it's very careful to construct that the systems that led to the shooting in the first place will undercut mm-hmm. Veda's healing over and over and over again and the cyclical nature of it the fact that the film both opens and closes with a shooting is extremely powerful Mm -hmm. without ever being sensationalized too that's what i love right like to get the impact we didn't need to see bullet casings hitting the ground we didn't need to see bloodied body yes we see a bloody t-shirt on quentin that's Mm -hmm. as violent as this film gets and yet the ramifications and the impact of school shootings is reverberating throughout this entire enterprise and this is a really important piece right so you know joe and i have read a few school shooting narratives we've talked about some of them on the show Mm -hmm. and typically they are highly sensationalized typically they are about sort of this big moment we get a lot of violence we get a lot of people who are close to the shooter if not the shooter's perspective itself Mm -hmm. what this film is doing that's very different is as joe pointed out like none of these well that's not true i mean quinton's brother is killed but mia and nick and Veda, they are not immediately impacted by the shooting mm-hmm. in the way that is typical of these narratives. Right. In some ways, you could describe them as being insulated from it. And yet, if you think about the number of school shootings every year in America, mm-hmm. the story of Veda and Mia and Nick is the story of hundreds of thousands of kids. Yep. Mm-hmm. Every other kid in the school is impacted, and we never get to see that story. And so I think the courageous choice to focus on the three of them in that bathroom stall while the noise of it all goes on around them, Mm -hmm. not only is it really effective cinematically, it's important. It's important to talk about the story of all these thousands of kids. Yeah. And especially, I mean, you said off the top that 
not a lot happens in this movie. And I think because so much of it is about Veda's emotional recuperation, right? Like Mm -hmm. you can see her early on in the film. There's a lot of scenes of her under the covers or she's in the bath. And there's this one, there's this one scene or a couple of scenes back to back where she's just shaking. Yeah. Because her body is in chalk. Like, it's just really rough. It's really hard to watch, but... <laughs> it is really hard to watch. And the film is so interested in the rush that the rest of the world has to get back to normal. Veda's constantly being asked if she's okay, with the expected mm-hmm. answer being, yep, <laughs> right? Oh, Not yeah, I do love really that. people really want to talk about it. <laughs> and there's a rush to get her back to school. There's a rush mm-hmm. for the school to reopen. There's a rush back towards normalcy that, Joe, I have to say impacted me not just in the world of the film but in thinking about what we're living through right now with the pandemic this this breakneck race to a normal that is really effed up actually because normal is what led to this school shooting happening in the first place and there's no point in the film where any of the adult characters ask any questions about that right even veda's dad who is i would say the most He's the only adult who we see express anger, but it's more like a, man, why is the world like this? And not like, how did that kid get a gun? (laughs) You know? Yeah, I will say that is one of the things I really appreciated about the film, because Mm. there's no attempt to answer or even justify why this, this boy may have done it, right? He barely has a name. We only hear his name once. Yeah, it's like once or twice. There's a scene where Beta is meeting with Nick shortly after everything that has gone down. And she mentions, you know, did he have any friends? Like, why, why would he have done this? How did he get the gun? And the questions are there because the film understands that we as a society always want those kinds of answers, right? We want to be able to demystify the motivation for why, like what happened with this poor boy? What happened with the shooter? We need to understand their perspective if we're ever going to hope to stop it again. And we have heard those stories countless times and it never stops anything, A, because we don't care about mental health and because we don't (laughs) care about gun restrictions and all those other fun, wonderful things. But it's also this movie saying it doesn't matter why they did it because the impact for the survivors is the same knowing what drove someone to shoot a gun in a school doesn't help veda get any better i love that the film asks the question and then says and now we're just going to move on because there aren't any easy answers i agree with you completely and i would not have wanted like a i would not have wanted a more focus on the killer and i would not have mm-hmm. wanted a stronger sort of activist bent to the film itself. But I just think it's so telling that it's the kids who A, have to get through it on their own, and B, like, Nick is the only one who wants to change things, right? Mm -hmm. The parents just feel so... um, They feel helpless, I think. Yeah, they feel helpless and they feel resigned to this. I think most of the adults feel resigned to it. And, And I just find that aspect of it almost more emotionally affecting sort of in the global sense than any Mm -hmm. individual moment in the movie itself. I just, you watch a film like this and you feel like this is not ever going to be resolved. And maybe 
maybe I feel that way because it's true, but it's hard mm-hmm. to watch. Yeah. Yeah, because the film is holding up a mirror to society and saying, hey, mm-hmm. you haven't done anything. We've been through this a hundred times. Mm-hmm. I can't remember specific figures, but there was a time where they closed all the schools because of the pandemic for a period mm-hmm. of time. And it was the longest that the U.S. had gone without a mass shooting for however long the schools had been closed. And then they reopened and there was a school shooting immediately. Mm-hmm. And you're just like, yeah. This is real life, and it really sucks. And mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not even trying to be facetious, like, oh, the film says the world sucks, and it's true. The film doesn't need to do that hard work because we implicitly already know. Mm-hmm. And that is rough. Like, that is a rough realization to come to, that we are so desensitized to the experience of people like Veda and Mia and Quentin, and even Nick to a certain extent, right? Like, I think we want everyone to be Nick because mm-hmm. it makes us feel better that totally yes at least we've turned these children into activists and look at how <laughs> responsible they are and it's like i'm willing to bet there's a lot more vedas than there are nicks there are a lot more vedas than there are nicks and one thing that the film is very subtle about is pointing out that nick's response is also a trauma response right uh-huh, we tend to think uh-huh. of nick's response as being like the healthy one like he's getting out there and he's making a difference no he's a traumatized kid and it's why he needs Veda as much as he does. And it's why, at the same time, she can't be there with him. And mm-hmm. I find that really, it, that's a really sad relationship because you don't have to die in a school shooting for relationships to change massively. And and the right. loss between Nick and Veda is very real. And I mm-hmm. think that it's a quiet story that is also part of the thing that needs to be told here. Mm-hmm. So I'd like to come back a little bit to parents, because we're coming off our episode on Unpregnant, where we talked about how unconvincing that mother-daughter mm-hmm. relationship was in the film. And then you mentioned Julie Bowen here, but we also haven't talked about the absent parents, and that would be <sighs> Mia's gay fathers who are artists who are off traveling in Europe, literally never seen in the film, literally never home. check on their daughter. Their kid is in a school shooting and they don't Mm -hmm. come home. And that's Mm -hmm. another one of those, like, this is how normal and expected it is. It's like, it's like, oh, well, if you don't die of COVID, you're okay. If you don't get murdered in the school shooting, then we're not going to cut the part where we see Venice. Mm -hmm. It's wild to me and so profoundly upsetting. And, And Mia is absolutely spiraling in her solitude, right? Like, yeah. She clings to Veda. She needs Veda there. And as soon as Veda's not there, she almost loses it completely. She nearly dies by suicide in a steam room, if we're being honest. Like, I don't know what would have happened if Veda hadn't come in to check on her. Also, she is hitting the wine reserve harder than I do as an adult. And (sighs) I appreciate that there's a few narrative shortcuts. Like, in some ways, I think Mia's story is... It's a little bit more fantastical. Yeah. It feels a little bit more movie-esque to me, but it also doesn't diminish the impact. No, and it's the addition of that sort of influencer culture, right? Like Mia is the, she's not popular. She's like the aspirational kid at school. She doesn't actually Mm -hmm. have any friends, but she has a massive Instagram following and and she's a model and she has all of this. She's a dancer. No one actually knows who she is. Yeah. Yeah. She's on a plateau above the rest of the kids. And so 
part of the what the film is doing is sort of shorthanding a kind of check on the kids who you think are untouchable because they're not mm-hmm. untouchable sort of story. But I yes. still think it's very effective. And part of it is that Maddie Ziegler sells it really well. Yeah, indeed. It was funny because I knew she was in this. And yet when I was watching the film, I didn't recognize her because no. I'm used to seeing her as a child in Sia's videos. And yeah, it, it's a, a surprisingly dramatic pivot. I haven't seen her other film, which is the Sia film, which got into trouble with the autism community. Yeah. But here, I think she's doing some really exciting work. It's actually quite understated because Mia is not a big character. Like there's one point where Veda says, oh, you said more than a couple words. And you realize, oh, yeah, Mia is a girl who doesn't give herself over to people very often, which really sells just how important her relationship with Beta is. And I think it softens the pivot to romance, which to me was like, oh, no, girls don't do this because it doesn't read to me as actual queer representation so much as we both need to feel something and we have this intense emotional bond. Why not? expand that to physical and it's not my favorite part of the film but i can understand it and i do think it's well handled mostly i i would agree with that reading and i think part of what makes it effective in the long run of the film itself is the contrast we get with the much more grounded and healthy quentin who has also experienced a trauma but is processing his grief and is sort of connected to a community and a family to whom he feels responsible. And like, he has all these anchor points. And so Mm -hmm. when Veda tries the same escape technique with him, he's like, whoa, no. I'm not in a good headspace right now. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Do you remember the part where my brother just died and we were all in a school shooting? Mm -hmm. And I, I think that that is really important, right? Because we get this, this character who is going through the beats of processing the trauma in a in a healthier way. And we see that his reaction is very different than how Mia and Veda react with each other. Yeah, yeah. And I, I like that the film, to a certain extent, plays with some expected YA conventions that we've talked about at other times throughout the life of the pod. You know, Veda does a little bit of spiraling before she maybe starts to get better so she experiments with drinking wine which she doesn't really like and she takes e and there's a really funny scene of jenna ortega trying to make her way down the stairs in her school (laughs) and i don't know i love the film for including these moments where you could conceive of that as a moment of levity it's a break from the all-encompassing overwhelmingly crushing sadness and withdrawal that veda is feeling but it's also very representative of that right like she comes back to school the very first day and they are doing an active shooter drill and then she finds that she can't go to the bathroom where she was during the shooting so she tries to hold her pee Mm. until the end of the day and then someone steps on a can and she pees herself because she was so scared and then she gets angry at herself and i oh these little quietly devastating moments brenna it's also like what the hell are the adults thinking like right (laughs) we just reopen the school and we just we do an active shooter drill and we just like we all just like Mm You know, the word trauma-informed gets thrown a lot these days. But um, none of this is trauma-informed. And Mm -mm. um, trauma-informed 
teaching, trauma-informed parenting. These are things that are a practice and a skill set you can read and learn about. But it's also just about thinking for five friggin' seconds. Like, just, right. I find the older I get, we've talked about this before, the older I get and the older my kiddo gets, I, I am so impatient with crappy adults and their crappy <laughs> decisions and the way they impact the kids. I just, it makes me absolutely bonkers. Right. This film has that in spades. <laughs> Does, yeah. And I think it it's helpful then to have the Julie Bowen character because you can yeah. see her doing things wrong. Like it's not yeah. what Veda needs, but you can at least tell that she is trying to do the right thing. She's trying to be the best mom that she can. And I don't want to belabor the point because I think we've touched on it well, but I guess the one final piece that I would like to talk to you about, for me, the emotional high point of the film, the beginning is devastating, the end is devastating. The piece that broke me and made me cry, not on this podcast, but during the movie, is the scene where Amelia climbs into bed with Veda mm -hmm. and we get this revelation because we know that Veda is taking things out on everyone and that it's not that she is mad or angry at them. It's that she doesn't know how to express herself anymore. Mm -hmm. And this moment where Amelia, who is, she's a brat, but she's super cute. And even as I say brat, I'm like, no, that's not quite the right word because mm -hmm. she's sweet. She clearly idolizes Veda. They have a massively intimate, close relationship. And Veda pushes her away the entire film. Yeah, I was going to say, she's a feisty kid who is hurt. And yeah. so she says things that are insensitive because, mm -hmm. not because she's a brat, but because she's a smart verbal kid who is <laughs> in a lot of pain, frankly. Yeah. In, in a way, she's trying to get a rise out of Veda because... Yes, because that would be emotional. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Yes. And so this scene where she climbs into bed with her and confesses that she feels responsible for Veda nearly dying and <sighs> Veda saying, it wasn't your fault. There was nowhere safe in that school. <sighs> rough, Brenna. It is rough. I love that scene too. I'm a younger sister. And every sibling relationship, if it's close, goes through this breaking point is the wrong word. But you know, yeah. depending on the age gap, at a certain point, the older sibling, either something happens or life or but they pull away yeah they pull away from that closeness with the younger sibling and they developmentally appropriate even when there's not a school mm -hmm. shooting involved right it's part of the right. differentiation of self but the younger sibling does not understand that the no. younger sibling doesn't know why it's happening and part of what's a delight about amelia's character is that she is articulate enough to ask the question which mm -hmm. I think many kids aren't. And I think part of the emotionality of that scene comes from the fact that that question should could so easily have gone unasked and that relationship could have so easily continued until it was irreparably broken. Mm -hmm. And I, I love that they get to repair that in the film because I think it would have been an altogether even sadder and more isolating mm -hmm. experience to watch if that hadn't happened. Yeah, because you're right. I mean, we don't get any kind of sense of closure or happiness between Veda and Nick. We don't know where things are going to go with Mia or Quentin. So it's nice that this foundational relationship with her family has been at least temporarily mended or is en route to being mended. 
before the film just absolutely shatters us in those final moments. Yeah. Yeah. It's nice to have a main character who is going through a lot, but has a family of origin to go back to that is grounded and healthy and cares. Mm -hmm. They don't get everything right because that would be unrealistic, but they love her. And that love is what is going to give us any sense that Veda will be able to be whole again one day. Mm -hmm. We get so few representations of healthy family systems in YA. And for good reason, kids need to see models of the experiences that they have. Right. But it's also really nice to see it working. Yeah. Oh, how refreshing. (laughs) I believe it sometimes works. As a mom, I'm really invested in those tales. That is fair. That is fair. Yeah. I thought of you when Julie Bowen just hits that wine glass after the conference, <laughs> after the confessional bit. You know, your kids say stuff to you sometimes and it's just like, that is deeply yep. true to you and deeply unsettling to me. And I don't need you to know how unsettled I am. So I am just going to hold my breath until you're done talking. It's <laughs> yeah. a good strategy, man. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. So... I said we had one final thing, but I do want to broach the subject just because we are doing these back to back with Unpregnant last week and now the fallout this week, both not going to theaters, both going to Mm. HBO Max. Mm. Do you feel like this film would have had a better shot cinematically? Because it's not talking about abortion, 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 but it is talking about gun violence. It's talking about gun violence without showing gun violence, and it's talking about young women's emotional reactions to gun violence. So, <laughs> oh, okay. No, I know where you're going it was with probably always doomed to streaming. <laughs> <laughs> but I do think between Unpregnant last week and the Fallout this week that like we need like um like a social program where every teenager gets a subscription to HBO Max. Is that a thing we can do? <laughs> Apparently, yeah. Um... <laughs> You know, I know that we've kind of trash-talked HBO Max as not having the reach of something like Hulu or Netflix, but the reality is is that they are clearly willing to buy and program some unconventional film properties. Like, these are films that I'm really happy to see out in the world because I think, if nothing else, they're going to instigate a conversation. And this is actually, you know... I don't want it to be seen as trash talking, but this is actually my frustration with these films being in the HBO Max space, which is that, like, the kid who needs to see it, will they have access to it? And that, I mean, that's always true of commercialized art, like, Mm -hmm. conceptually, right? And it's true of the banned book conversations that we're having, too. Like, there's always going to be a parent who wants to get in the way of a kid getting the text they need. But Mm -hmm. I just, um, I would love to see these stories embraced more broadly, because because this is what actual young adulthood looks like. Yeah. And you might not like that. And I sure mm-hmm. as heck don't like it as a parent who is about... <laughs> I mean, it's... I know I keep saying it, man, but it's kindergarten choice week this week. We'll find out if Groot got into the school we wanted for him. And I just... You know, even in Canada... I don't know, man. It's, it's really scary. And yeah. if we're not going to fix it then we've got to at least give kids the narrative, structural storytelling to cope with it, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, it's got to be one or the other. And I don't understand these people who don't want to do either, who just want to close their eyes and say that childhood is the same as it was, which, by the way, wasn't great in (laughs) 1950-whatever either. 
Like, But Brenda, that's not true. Stand By Me told us that it was great back in the 50s. <laughs> you know, when we teach young adult literature, we talk about the danger of focalizing from the adult perspective because we have a tendency to sentimentalize and mm-hmm. sanitize and romanticize youth. And those stories don't help kids. These stories yeah. help kids. And oh, now right? I'm getting emotional. Josie, I told you I was fine. <laughs> and then... <laughs> Oh, you nearly made it. I cried twice, but you nearly made it. <laughs> okay, well, <sighs> you, you mentioned banned books, so let's maybe transition to our outro. Brenna, what should people be reading if they do want to follow our trajectory for the next entry? Yeah, Joe, we're only 16 minutes longer than you wanted this episode to be. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> um, yes, our next entry is a much lighter hearted text. We're reading This One Summer by Mariko Tamaki and Jillian Tamaki. It is about how beautiful childhood can be. Hmm. Although it is still honest. And I, I think I think it'll be a bit of a breath of fresh air after some of these stories, but a good one. Okay. And if you want to get in on that conversation, folks, reminder, we want your feedback. So tweet at us or send us an email before February 24th. And if you want to plan ahead to March's book, we will be reading The Pigman by Paul Zindel. So that one can be harder to find because it's older. So maybe get that on hold at the library sooner rather than later. And if you want to okay. send us those thoughts, you can find us on Twitter at HKHSPod or on the hashtag HKHSPod. Your longer thoughts can come to us, HKHSPod at gmail.com. Joe, if they want to reach out to you with condolence and comfort after this episode, where do they find you? <laughs> I am at Beast on my remote, and that's the letter B. And I'm at Brenna C. Gray. That's Gray with an A. Please feel free to send some kitten gifts. I would appreciate mm. it. And Joe, what's our next uh, regular episode? Well, I was going to say, in order to get to this one summer, we unfortunately are not quite done with tragedy. So uh, in between those texts, so next week, we will be talking about Aiden Chambers, Dance on My Grave, and its accompanying film, Summer of 85, which is a French film. I am genuinely excited about this. First of all, excited to get out of North America. The book is British. Mm. The film is French. I'm excited to go back to the 80s. I'm excited to go back to Aiden Chambers and see Mm -hmm. if you feel differently about this one than you did about The Toll Bridge. I'm just excited for all of it. Yeah, and I have seen this film and it was not what I expected it to be. So I'm actually very eager to revisit it knowing what it is and also yeah uh in chambers again i'm excited to revisit your childhood coming of age <laughs> sexual <laughs> author brenna yeah, that makes it sound so creepy it does oh. it does if you enjoy being creeped out by us you can join us next week and until there then i will see you on the page <laughs> and i will see you on the screen Unfortunately, are you fucking kidding me? No, get out, 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 get out. Sorry.